This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello, and welcome to David's Book Talk. And we have a special guest today. Her name is Tess Gerritsen. Yes, she's a New York Times bestselling author. We all know Rizzoli and Isles, and, and this new book's called Listen to Me. How are you? I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's fun to be back on your, on, you know, talking to you again. I know. <laughs> we, we were saying before how long it's been, but we won't mention that because then people will yeah. go wonder. They're going to ask me how old I am, and I don't want, I don't want those questions. <laughs> hey, hey, we're just old, okay? We're just old. <laughs> yeah. Do we have to say that word? <laughs> I'd rather say, well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we don't need to get into that. Listen to me. Now, I started reading this book, and I thought, Wow, so this is, there's a lot of books in the series. I thought, I hope it doesn't. The series isn't getting stale. But this book is so good. Well, you know, there was a there was a big gap between the, the previous book and this book in this series. Why? Why is why a gap? Oh well, partly it's that I did think that maybe it was over at book number twelve. I was kind of tired, and I think that's one of the one of the problems with having a long running series is that you always have to find some fresh new perspective. So I wrote two other books out of the series, and um, and then the voice came back to me. It was just I, I got a new perspective, and it was from the point of view of uh, another character in the series, and that was Jane Rizzoli's mother. Yeah, and, and boy, does it work in this book. I'm laughing just thinking about all the things that happened in this book because people are going to enjoy just seeing what she goes through in this book. Well, yeah, the, the theme of the book really is all about mothers and daughters and how at a certain point in our lives we think we know more than mom, we don't listen to mom, and don't really appreciate how much wisdom has been acquired by women who have lived a long time and have seen a lot of different things. Right, and and we all know Jane was always a busy woman, so she's you know when when her mother's always nagging her, she thinks, oh, I don't, maybe I shouldn't listen to her. Uh, hence the title of the book, "Listen to Me." <laughs> yes, right, right. Maybe we should listen to our mothers more often. <laughs> right, exactly. And I now that my mother's gone, I wish I had. <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, we've lost our mothers. Not now after they're gone, and we just think, God, I wish I'd had more. T- I'd taken the time to talk to her. A lot more, so there's there's some bittersweet feelings in there, and and I guess I'm, I'm giving Jane a chance, uh, at least fictionally, to have time to appreciate her own mother. I, I remember that I my mother my mother loved flowers, so we would go uh, flower shopping, and the joy I got from that was just and past anything I could even tell you about. It, it was just the most wonderful. When you do things for your mom, you never regret it. You never. That's right. You never get to the point where says, I'm glad I, you know, you never get to that point where you, where you say that you, you regret it, because you don't. You never do. No, you're right. Um, and and I think that that's, that that's some of the things that Jane, you said, is a very busy woman. She's, she's handling a homicide investigation during this book, and um, 
doesn't think she has time to deal with her mother's anxieties about her her neighborhood and what's going on in mom's neighborhood. And little does she know what's gonna what's gonna transpire. And I can't go into because I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> People are gonna enjoy reading about that in this book. I don't know why I'm laughing. I really shouldn't. Have. It's very serious, but at the same time, you, it, it's funny. Yeah, it is because Angela is funny. Um, and it's not that she's necessarily cracking jokes. It's just her view of the world and of her neighbors and what she sees and the fact that her neighbors do crazy things. <laughs> you know, what, you, you, look at the, you look at the people across the street and you think there's something wrong with them. And, or you look at the people you've known for years and, and don't realize what they've been up to behind closed doors. And sometimes it turns out to be serious and sometimes it just turns out to be wacky. Were you thinking at all about Rear Window when you were writing this book? Yeah, that was that was one of the of the inspirations. But another is um, I had this aunt. Uh, well, you know, in China, in Chinese uh, parlance, it's, it, every older woman is an auntie. Um, so we had an auntie in our neighborhood who was such a busybody. I mean, I like to I like to say that she knew you were going to have your period before you did. So she was she was in wow. everybody's business. She was very annoying, and yet. Um, if you were, if you had a question about somebody in the neighborhood, you'd go to her and she'd, she'd have the answer. She'd know what was going on. I think this is not unusual in neighborhoods or in villages. There's always somebody who knows what's going on. Well, I right. I had a neighbor, this was maybe 10 years ago, and she was all over the apartment complex, you know, getting in everybody's business and walking her dog and, and just, just finding out as much as she could possibly soak up and she wasn't very nice i've gotten to know her so i know her better now i, I understand her more than i used to so, yeah, but it's, yeah we we jump a lot of times we jump to conclusions about things like that we just think what a busy body and we don't we don't go any farther than that sometimes and it's 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 mean but it does happen i mean you and you wonder you know because you don't want them in your business no, you don't. And I guess it all, it all gets down to motive. Why are they a busybody? Are they a busybody because they're manipula manipulative or they're holding power over you? Or are they, like Angela Rosoli, just worried about the safety of her neighborhood and concerned that everything is, is okay? So what's, what's been the reaction from your fans about, about you doing this next book in the series? Have they all been anxious about when the next one's going to be coming out? Yeah, I, I think that they got the sense that maybe I, I was ready to move on, but um, I think they were, first of all, everybody was sort of a surprise when this book came out, and I was, I was surprised as well when I started writing it. Um, and I think that's what turns into the best book of all, when um, you get a, an inspiration from a place that you're not expecting to get it from, and it, it just turns a, a story or a series in a, in a fresh new direction. The reaction for a lot of the fans also is um, they love hearing from Angela. That reminds her of their mothers. Um, also reminds you that Jane comes from somewhere. She didn't just spring up a brilliant detective. Your your book, The Surgeon, which was written a number of years ago, was, was a masterpiece in my in my vision. I, for some reason, that book stays with me even today. It, it, there's something about that book that says to me that's one of the best she's ever done. And I think to myself, and a lot, sometimes when an author has a really, really spectacular book, it's hard to follow that up. But I can't remember any book that I've read of yours that was bad, that was just like, oh, this isn't as good. And 
and so you you're you're able to keep that quality up, and that's very very difficult because. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're up, you know that's that's real. That is the tough part. But um, in a career, it's writers can turn out one really, really good book. But then, how do you keep it going for books? I mean, I've, I've written thirty-one books now, um, and it. I guess the real question is, what is it that keeps writing fresh? What keeps it fun for the writer? Um, and I just have to say that you need to do different things. You need to have a palate cleanser every so often. Get away from the series. And, and you don't. Write- and, yeah. and you don't know exactly what's going to bore a reader. I mean, maybe you're, maybe you become more expert at it. But I mean, how do we how do we know what's going to bore a reader and what's going to be exciting for a reader? I guess I mean you've gotten you you've been in the business long enough to know probably what works and what doesn't. But I, I could be in the middle of a book and all of a sudden I'll get bored. And, I, and we've all been through that. You know, you read a book and you're like, I don't like this book. Or you just keep saying, can we move on to the next scene? I mean, I'm done with the scene, or, or let's get to the point here. That's, it's, it's an interesting question because um, when I'm writing, I like, you know, you're so deep in the woods of your story, you don't know, is this boring? Is it not boring? I don't know. Um, and I, I don't really know what, I guess it is just keeping up that sense of tension that there's always a question that is about, that needs to be answered, that people are off balance. That's what keeps people focused on the story. It's when, I guess, you go into too much backstory that's not interesting, or there is no tension on the page. Then, you know, or, or, there, or there, maybe it's just like action after action after action. That gets really boring, too. So it's, a, I think, a matter of, of um, not putting too much, I mean, using everything with the, the, the head of a chef. Um, putting a little bit of spice here, a little bit of spice there, but you can't be overwhelming uh, one way or the other. And you, you wrote a book called Gravity, which really got to me too. That one of one of your earlier books, and boy, there's something about that book, and, and I don't know. There's something about a lot of your, especially a lot of your earlier books too, are just so phenomenal. I mean, at one point you were sort of like the Robin Cook. <laughs> I remember you were writing a lot of medical thrillers, and, and you, you sort of got away from that. Yeah. Um, gra- by the way, Gravity is my favorite book. It's the book that sold the fewest copies of anything I've written. Really? Yes. It's my favorite. I think it's my best, and very few people picked it up, I think, because of the subject matter. I think the subject matter scared them away. Uh, oh, my God, it's about science, and it's about the space program, and um, it's not the usual thing that people write about or read about, and I think that was that was probably... Well, I loved it, though. What, what's that yeah. say about me? <laughs> well, well uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're, you're, uh, you're, you're more curious than most people. Um, but I did, I did love that book, and I think that, unfortunately, because Gravity did so poorly, and it was my fourth medical thriller, that's when I thought... I need to I need to pivot a little bit, and that's how the surgeon came about because that was the book that came right after Gravity. So I wonder what would have happened had that had Gravity sold well. Whether you still would be doing medical thrillers? I might I might be doing I might be continuing to do science thrillers um, because that that was always I mean I'm, I was very curious about um, not only space at the time, but I was also curious about uh, about um, you know things that have to do. Under the ocean, you could sort of tell if you looked at gravity that um, it starts off under the sea. Um, and I think I would have I would have done more Michael Crichton kind of stories, um, but I could see that my publisher really didn't want them. 
So I moved on to um, The Surgeon, which is one of those, I guess it was straddling both medical thriller and crime fiction. That book it had both. Um, and when that was a success, I realized, oh, maybe I should be doing more crime. So which book has been the most successful for you so far? I would say The Surgeon. The Surgeon really? Yeah, because it started as a series, and, you know, when you have a long-running series, people always just discover it later on. They always go back to read book number one. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, so that I, we have a lot of people who are continuing to read The Surgeon because they're only discovering me now in book number 13. Right. So are, is the plan to keep continuing the Rizzoli and Arnold series? Is that what you're going to do, or, or what's... I I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Right now, I, I'm just finishing up a, a book that's not in the series. It's um, it's a fun book about, uh, it's based on something in my little town here in Maine. Um, <laughs> years ago, when we moved here, um, my husband's a, a medical doctor, and he had a practice. And he, he had a lot of patients who'd show up, and he'd do, you know, the, their occupational history. And they would say, I used to work for the government. And my husband would ask, well, what did you do for the government? And they would say, I can't talk about it. Well, he kept getting this answer from multiple patients. And we finally asked around, and one of the realtors said, oh, they're all retired CIA. This town is full of retired CIA. Oh, interesting. And I thought, there's a book here. <laughs> and, you know, the book being, what do retired spies do? Do they get together? Um, if, if a crime occurs um, in one of their front yards, uh, what? How would they how would they mobilize their intelligence and try to solve it? So it, it's um, it's a fun story about not only a group of retired spies but also the local police chief, a young woman um, who doesn't know who these old people are and um, starts to get suspicious that they're not who they who she thinks they are. So um, it, it's a it's a, a little bit of a spy novel and also a little bit of a crime novel. Now the woman you're talking about. It, it, is it difficult to make her completely different than Jane Rizzoli? I, I assume she's quite different from Jane Rizzoli. Oh, yeah, she's a small-town cop. She's, um, her roots go into this town for, like, four generations. So it's very much rooted in Maine. Um, Do you ever, have you ever had that problem where a character you started writing seemed like another character you'd already written? Yeah, you know, it, it, you have to be careful about making sure that every voice is unique. It just is. Um, and sometimes I won't start writing a scene or a book even if I can't hear the character's voice talking to me. Um, so this, you know, this young, this police, this one woman um, in the town, Spyville, um, is very different from Jane. She's very grounded. She's very, um, you know, very traditional. She's, she's a Mainer, and she loves the cold, and she loves being a country girl. Um, so that's quite a bit different from Jane, the city cop. Right. Well, that's that's cool. I just it just made me think. You know, maybe it's it's easier to write a character twice, <laughs> especially if you like the character <laughs> and not yeah. and not realize it. Just as just like it's easy to easy to use the same phrase over and over again. Like, well, you know that that is something that's unavoidable because we are we are drawing on our own accumulation of language and reading and literature, and you're going to fall back on some familiar metaphors sometimes that you just you know you. Sometimes I'll write a metaphor on a page and I'll think I've used that before and I'll have to fix it. I'll have to change it. So um, yeah, it's hard not to repeat yourself in many ways after you've written you know a couple dozen books. 
Right, exactly. But I, I don't notice that a lot in authors. I, I mean, if it, if it, I'm trying to think if there's any author I really noticed in it, and I can't think of anybody offhand. I'm sure there must be somebody who I thought, oh, well. Harlan Coben maybe to a certain extent because he does. Well, he uses the. Um, he says the same, you know, saying. There's the same sayings we're going through all his books, and it's the same. So in that way, he does. But it, it seems to work for him because his characters are so interesting to begin with. Yeah, maybe actually a conscious literary device on his part. Um, right. Uh, so I, I don't, I, I can't comment on that. Yeah, it, 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 that's that's what comes to mind when I think about it. But it's it's interesting how. And I don't know, maybe I wouldn't notice it right away, because I, I read so fast. I mean, there's so many books to read. How am I going to get them all done if I don't, if I read slowly? <laughs> I don't know, because I, I can't, I have a giant pile of, you know, to-be-read books on my nightstand, and I just, I don't know how I'm going to ever get through them. And plus, you keep adding to them on top, plus your, I, you know, your Kindle is, is filling up, and Oh my gosh! I really need to go on a vacation, just sit in the beach and read. <laughs> That's right. Do you ever get the Do you ever get the urge to just do that and stop writing? You know, I'm. I, here's a confession. I have told my husband several times. I think maybe this is my last book. I think after this, I'm just gonna. We're just gonna travel. We're gonna. I'm gonna retire. We're gonna just read. And then within a month or two, here comes another idea. Oh, I gotta write that. Okay, I'll finish that, and then maybe I'll retire. Well, this is. This has been going on for about four books now. And every time I think I'm going to put it aside, another book pops into my head. So um, I suppose that just that's just the voices that won't let you stop stop writing. Yeah, Stephen King said the same thing, and it's like what twenty books later, and he's still writing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I have to hand it to writers who actually can say I'm retiring, and then they retire and don't and don't do anything or more because they get control of their lives. I think writers, in a large part, we don't have control of our lives because we are controlled by voices that don't exist, the um, voices that want us to tell the story. You do live very close to Stephen King, do you not? A couple hours? Uh, yeah, about an hour and a half. Have you ever met him? I have met him. I, I, played in, <laughs> I played the fiddle in the Rock Bottom Remainders once. You know, I told people that nobody believed me when I said that. Oh yeah, well I have the poster here to prove it. Um, it. But it was a, it was one, it was one concert. It was for Terry, and we had, we had two thousand people in the audience listening to us. And so, um, but it was a one-off because you know, first of all, I think the rock bottom remainders may have disbanded. Um, but also, they usually play at book events, and this was for a charity event in Maine. You know, I think I mentioned that we, we talked about your book, Choose Me, which I want to, I want to mention in a minute. We talked about your book, Choose Me, at the last book meeting that I went. That was back in July. And I think I brought it up, and everybody looked at me like, no, you're wrong. She wasn't in that group. And and th this really happened. I'm not even making it up. <laughs> now i now I got to go back to them and tell them it's really true. She's got a picture. It's really true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I remember it. It's in the back of my head, because I, I think I remember asking you about it before. And yeah. I think Dave Barry was in the group, too, wasn't he? Right, and Amy Tan and uh, Ridley Pearson. So uh, yes, we were we were a, we were a group. What, what was what's it like to meet Stephen King? I mean, when you say hello to him, what does he say to you? Oh, he's a very jovial, very generous man, and he's um, and he's fun. I think 
the one thing I remember about him was thinking, my God, this man is brilliant. Um, so we were having lunch together, and, you know, he's having a conversation with us, and all of a sudden, his, his eyes kind of glaze over, and he looks at me, and he goes, I just solved my plot problem. And I thought, here he is talking to us at lunch. In the meantime, the other part of his brain is working on the book that he's writing. So, yeah, he's multi, his brain is multitasking. Um, and everything about him is just, it's, it's I think, classic listening to voices, just the stories are always spinning around. I don't think he could retire even if he wanted to. That is so, what a cool story. I it, it, it seems simple, but it's, it's so, it's so Stephen King. I mean, it sounds just like him. <laughs> to, to a certain extent, I should mention though that the book is out. Your book's out from Valentine Books, and I I love the bright cover on this book. It's a very bright. It, it just works for the book. It's amazing. The American covers sometimes aren't as good as like you. You look at the European covers, and they're always so much more colorful. Oh, you're looking at the English cover. Yeah. Yeah. With no. The- I- no, I'm looking at the American cover. I'm sorry, English. Oh. When, you, when you say English, I think American right away. But oh. you're talking British, yeah. I don't. I haven't seen the British cover, so I don't know. But I like the American cover. I really. There's something about I, it. Yeah, I like both covers. I think both covers are really pretty, pretty beautiful. Um, but, but a lot of times I'll see the the UK cover, and I'm like, wow. Why can't the American covers look like that? I don't know. It's different with different books, but I I I, I tend to like the UK covers sometimes a lot more, but not this, yeah. not with yours. So, <laughs> so what from the beginning again? When you think of an idea and you write the book, how long does that take? I mean, is there a period of doing research, or how does it work with you? Well, it depends on the book. I mean, for Gravity, that took oh two years of research before I really started writing that story. Um, and you can understand why, because it's about, it's about astronauts and the International Space Station. Um, this, the, listen to me, uh, probably didn't take any research at all. It was really so character-based. It was so about the suburbs, which is what I, where I grew up. Um, it, it all felt familiar to me. And then this book that I'm writing now about the retired spy, that, that has required um, months of research. So it's, it's very project-based. And um, if I don't have to do research, uh, listen to me, I think took, oh, maybe eight months to write. Right. It's interesting you say it's different for every book. That's really, that's really interesting to hear that. I mean, everybody, you know, a lot of authors will say, well, it took nine months to write, and then, you know, and they send, tend to say the same things, but you're saying the exact opposite, which is really well, interesting. Yeah. Well, I have the advantage in that I, I refuse to do to sign contracts now, um, so I don't have strict deadlines. If you have a deadline, you pretty much write a book a year, I mean, because you're, you're contracted to do that. But I realized that that was um, psychologically difficult for me, that I did not like that stress of the tension of knowing you had Legally, to turn this thing in on a certain date, I just didn't like that. So I finally stopped signing contracts, and I just said to my publisher, when I finish the book, you'll see it. And then the contract is written after um, I turn in the book. Um, And I think that's made a big difference just emotionally. Um, The funny thing is it hasn't slowed me down. I'm still writing about the same speed. It's just that I don't have that, that pressure of a contract to fulfill. How interesting. I I had no idea when I, that you were going to say that. You say a lot of things I don't. <laughs> they really throw me. 
But, I mean, that's so cool. I mean, but you're right. That pressure to write a book a year has got to be incredible on some authors. Yeah, it is. And then when, you t when you're late, then you feel bad. You feel like a failure in some ways. But if nobody's expecting the book and bam, it pops onto their desk, it's like, oh, you know, I just I gave you a little surprise. So um, it, it, I think it's, it's better for me. That's all I know. And now, it does slow things down because then the contract has to be written, and, and then, then they have to sort of start from a, from a cold start, um, the marketing and the uh, publication process. Um, but if you want to have a long-term career, you have, to, you have to guard your creativity. You have to guard uh, your enthusiasm, and uh, this is one way to do it. I want to talk about Choose Me, the book you wrote with Gary Braver. Uh, what a yeah. book that is. That's one of those books you, you pick it up, and the more you get into it, the more you're just like, "Oh my God, this book is incredible." Well, that was a that was a funny book. It was like every man's worst nightmare, and um, and, and the the impetus, the, the beginning of that book was unlike anything, of course. I mean, because I've never done a collaboration, but it started off um, at a cocktail party, and Gary and I were at a Christmas cocktail party just before COVID. And um, uh, we were, I was following the, the uh, Me Too movement, um, very interested in that. And I said to Gary, there's, a, there's a, a way to write about the Me Too movement that would be different. And that is every, I'm assuming that every illicit affair has two sides to the story. The, you know, the two different lovers are just going to see it in a different way. What if we did that and a woman wrote the female point of view and a man wrote the male point of view? And let's turn it into a crime fix, a crime novel where the woman ends up murdered. Um, and then we go back in time and see how did she get there? You know, what what is the backstory for this affair and how did she end up dead and is he the one who did it? So uh, that's, that was the beginnings of Choose Me. And uh, Gary and I, of course, then COVID hit, and Gary and I wrote the whole thing remotely. He would email me a chapter from the male point of view, and I would write back with the female point of view. Um, and we immediately chose uh, the setting of a university campus. That's where Gary works. He is a professor. Um, and we thought, oh, a situation, a professor having a affair with a student, that is, that's very a loaded kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's controversial. And, um, of course, the professor um, is going to face consequences. So it started off that way, and, and it's not your classic mystery. It's more of how many mistakes can one man make before his life is completely destroyed. I, I think for, in a lot of ways, men read that think and thought, oh, my God, what a nightmare. Oh, my God, this, this, could this happen to me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it's scary to think about that something like that. And you do feel sorry for him more than once yeah. during the book. And that was the real challenge of the story, is that the man, the, the, the bad boy who had the affair, a married, a married professor had the affair, is actually the person who's going to, who we want to focus on as the hero. How do you make this man somehow sympathetic to your readers? That was a real challenge. I think, I think Gary did a good job that way, and uh, by, by really emphasizing how guilty he felt, how he suffers, um, and... Um, it's um, it was it was a challenge to make that the hero. And, and my book club was saying, who is Gary Braver? Never heard of him before. And it, like he couldn't be a good writer because we haven't heard his name before. And you know he's not a writer that everybody has heard of. But uh -huh. but it was I didn't care as long as the story's good, as long as the writing's good. I don't care. I don't care who who writes the book. If it's good, I'll read it. No, it has nothing yeah. to do with whether I know the name or not. 
Well, Gary has written a couple of thrillers. Um, I, I don't, I don't think he's he's as he's you know that well known. But uh, he had a couple things that I I liked his thrillers, his other thrillers, which is how we we were friends. We've been friends for thirty years. Um, oh wow. But, yeah, but the fact that he is a professor, that he was writing with a lot of personal knowledge about campus life, um, and that I think he really got into the angst of this character, um, made the story work. And I can't, I mean, reading the book, I, I mean, now that you tell me he wrote the male perspective and he wrote the fan, I would not have known that unless you told me that. It it works seamlessly in the book. I mean, it's not like you can say, well, that this writing seems different. I didn't notice that at all. Well, I did. I, I, I did the final edit, so um, I did have to. I mean, there are, there were things I didn't want it to be too jarringly different between voices. Um, so I may have I may have softened up the character of Jack Dorian a little bit. Um, there were a couple things um, that um, I, I changed. For instance, Jack Dorian, the professor, um, did tend to the in the first versions did tend to look at women in a more sexualized way, and I said to Gary. This is really going to turn off our female readership. We've got to we've got to soften this up. Oh, um, I, I did do things like that. <laughs> right. Well, and that's interesting too. What, what I don't think readers really realize what goes into writing a book. I mean, you think like Nora Roberts. She'll have like four books a year, and you think, how in the world does that woman write four books a year? How I mean, how is it even possible? I still wonder this. How many? She, how, how she can write that many books? I mean. Can you imagine writing four books a year? No, I have trouble just keeping up with a book a year schedule. I think Nora must just write really clean copy the first time. Um, or uh, I don't know if she does outlining, um, I, because I don't outline, so that slows me down a lot. I'm always writing horrible first drafts, and then I have to go back and fix everything in the second, third, fourth, and fifth draft. She doesn't have time to write horrible first drafts. No, she doesn't. She doesn't. Well, you know, I remember... Um, reading that Isaac Asimov almost always wrote perfectly in his first draft. If you can do that, then you can turn out books faster. Yeah. So maybe she's, she's able to do that. Maybe. I don't know. We'll never know. And I remember somebody asked her one time, when, when is the book done? And, the, and her response was, when it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, that's cold. That's a cold answer. But, you know, Authors ask, get asked the same questions over and over again. That's what we forget. And after a while, yeah, it's going to wear you down. You're going to make a smart comment because it, it's just the way it is. When you ask the same question over and over, anybody's going to crack them. But she's obviously brilliant because people love her, and she's been so incredibly successful. Yeah, and and she, you know, she just she just keeps going, and I think she just has a multitude of stories to tell and multiple. Um, series that she's writing. So um, I, I think that Nora is, well, here, you know, the one piece of advice I always give about um, is, is something that um, I repeat that Nora Roberts said. Um, she said, I, I can fix a bad page, but I can't fix a blank page. And that is one thing that always keeps me going is that don't stop to edit. Just keep on, you have to write that. You have to write the bad page before you can fix it. Um, so I think that that's really good advice for me is I always try to fill those pages, no matter whether they're good or bad pages, just fill those pages. Right. Now, you have finished the next book or you're still working on it? Oh, I'm, I'm actually sitting on the revisions right now. I'm doing, I'm working on them right now. So, yeah, the first, the, the book is pretty, um, is pretty much finished. Uh, my agent suggested that I, uh, I include a few more character, um, a, a, a few par character points of view that I had not before. 
um, and I think it's going to work really great. Mm, isn't that what you get it all done and people are, everybody wants to say, you know, they want to say, change this, change that. That must bother you sometimes. Well, no, it really depends on whether you trust who's talking. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, and you know, whenever I get advice, uh, most of the time it's really, really good advice, and I listen. And I mean, you don't have to follow everything to the letter. Um, but this was, this was very good advice. I think they, they were characters that wanted to have their own voices heard in here. They wanted to have their own chapters with their own points of view. Um, and I, and I, I hadn't done it. I was thinking about it. But then when I heard from my agent, you know, I would like to hear more from this character. I said, yeah, you're right. I was going to do that anyway. I just kind of didn't want, I just didn't want to take the time to do it. So now I'm doing it. Isn't that great when they confirm what you already thought? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, okay, I should have followed my instincts the first time. <laughs> exactly. And that's it. People don't follow instincts a lot of times. I, I work at a grocery store, and and when they're doing self-checkout, they I say, follow your instincts. You, you're going to push the right button, and then you stop. People are, are scared nowadays. It, we're, we live in a very oh, yeah. scary society. <laughs> you know what? Those, check, those self-checkout lines are scary, though, because you have all these things you could push. Right. All I do to make it wrong is an alarm going to go off? I mean, is it going to look like I'm shoplifting? Yeah, they are. <laughs> We're used to doing away things the way we've always done. For instance, um, there are um, airlines overseas, or maybe they're in the U.S. too, where you, you bag and tag, tag your own luggage at the airport, and then you load it onto the conveyor belt yourself. That, you know, freaks you out the first couple of times until you realize it's not that difficult. But that first time always freaks you out. Exactly, exactly. So you're, do you think you're more creative now than when you started, or are you, are you equally as creative? Um, I, I think what I am is less afraid to do something weird. <laughs> I think um, what has happened is that I, I feel the weight of, you know, my lifespan. Um, I feel that time has gone by, and if I don't write the story I want to write now, I will never get a chance to. Um, so I'm, I'm taking a few more risks than I would have in the, in the past. Um, I don't know if you read my book, The Shape of Night. That was a wild risk. That was a erotic ghost story. Uh, nobody expected it, but it was a story I wanted to tell. Um, I think I read it, but I'm not sure. No, but I know, the well, title sounds familiar, though. It's um, yeah, it's it's kind of the ghost in Mrs. Muir meets Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, it was based on a a screenplay I had. Freaked them out a little bit. Right. 
but um, it was such an important part of the story because really the book um, is about her coming to grips with something she's done that was very shameful and in a way the the book is really about the the, um, the emotion of shame and how we get past it. I want to mention about more Isles, the lady that plays who's the woman that plays her in the played her in the TV show your TV Sasha, show Sasha Alexander. The difference between her and the books and and Tasha, Tasha really <laughs> went to town with the character. I mean, she was almost unlikable a lot of times. Well, she's she's very different. I think what happened was, you know, first they cast Angie Harmon in the part of Jane Rizzoli. Right. After, so that was a primary casting decision. After that, they had to find somebody who had chemistry on screen with Angie Harmon. And they went through a number of actresses who um, were probably more similar to my Maura Isles in the book. Right. Um, but the chemistry wasn't there. It was only when they, they did the screen test with Sasha Alexander that they thought it worked. Um, so that's how they ended up with a, with a, you know, an actor that was very, very different from, uh, from the book Maura. Right. And but I remember when watching another show, every date she ever went on, she kind of ruined because she got too descriptive or, you know, or she was too particular about who she was dating, you know, or she would find a, a fault with somebody. It was like Elaine from Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was the way she was written. Um, the, uh, the showrunner told me that later that they were using as a model for these two women, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. Um, and Jane Rizzoli was Captain Kirk, you know, the actuous, uh, um, uh, very, very bold woman. And then they were using Mr. Spock um, to model more aisles. So that they may have overdone it a little bit when they were writing her, her parts where she was becoming way too technical. Um, but that, that, I think that's how the whole, that's how this dichotomy started between these two actors. Yeah, that, that that makes me think of last night when I learned about Nichelle, Nichelle Nichols passing away. What a, what oh a, gosh, yeah, I know. What yeah. a wonderful woman she was. I mean, and, and I didn't know her personally, but from everything I've ever seen about her, she just brought a, a huge light into this world. Oh well, you know what? That show—I mean, I grew up on that show. That show broke so many barriers. Um, George Takei was the first. Asian American who really had a major role in a series as a hero and not a houseboy. That that inspired so many Asian Americans, and I'm sure Michelle did the same thing with African Americans. It was it was just groundbreaking. And remember when they had she and Kirk had that kiss? I mean, it was it was it really rocked people. It did, didn't it? It was. Um, I don't know if you remember. Uh, Guess who's coming to dinner? Was Sydney yes. Yeah, that same that. Same um, idea. There were people apparently who were trying to rip out theater seats because they were so angry about guests who's coming to dinner. Why? I mean, why? What? I, I guess. I mean, it, it means. I don't know. I just don't understand it. I guess to a certain extent. Oh, America wasn't ready for. Wasn't ready for that. Um, I think that maybe America wasn't ready for the Captain Kirk and and Lieutenant O'Hara kiss, but. You know, sometimes you just need to be first. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was a major thing in that show. I mean, it's still talked about today about that kiss, about you know, should the, and it's amazing it got through that it made it through the the censors or whoever they have to make it through. I guess the the network at that point. Yeah, 
Well, you know, I think they were brave producers. <laughs> yeah, and, and you just and, and George Takai still going strong. That man never, he never. He's <laughs> more and more interesting every time you hear about him. He's he's not afraid to do whatever he feels like doing. No, no, they aren't. Well, and and you know, he's um, he's George Takei. He's got quite a Twitter following. I mean, I follow him, and he's he's still hilarious. So. Who is who is the most impressive person you've ever met? Do you think? Oh God! Uh, well, I have to say Barack Obama. I have met him, um, and man, that guy. And, and well, no, what I take it back. I think Michelle Obama was impressive. <laughs> there was a she was a woman, and you just felt like I'd follow you in the battle. You know, she's like General Michelle. She was really something. So you got to meet both of them. At separate times, um, um, Obama. It's interesting. My sister-in-law went to went to high school with um, with Barack. Oh, they wow. both both went to Punahou High School in Hawaii, and um, she has. You know, it's really it's really charming to hear her re remembrance of what he was like as a boy. She said he was really into basketball. That's all he wanted to do was be a basketball player, and there was no hint that this man was going to be president someday. So you just never know uh, from your high school classmates who was going to end up in the White House. Um, but then we met Michelle at a fundraiser, and first of all, she is she's an impressive she's an impressive woman. Just just. Physically, you know, these big, strong shoulders, and she's tall, and she is, just has this um, a charisma about her. Huh. Yeah, she just seems like one of these people you'd love to have lunch with. <laughs> yeah. And just ask her things, you know, what's it like being you? I think, I mean, I, watching that First Lady series on, on Showtime, which I really, I'm one of the few people that really enjoyed it. I think it got, it got so weirdly rated by certain people, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think people rate it based on their political beliefs. That's all. Yeah, it might be true. I, I just, it was just, but I mean, you, she's just a, an interesting person, and she does so much if good for the, for society, you know, and she's so... She, everything seems easy for her. I mean, she talks. And never, you never see her nervous. You never see her really angry. And you just wonder: Is she always like that? Is she always in a good mood? Well, I think this is something that they both share. Um, both Barack and Michelle is this real sense of self-control. They they understand how they are perceived. It comes from growing up a minority. It comes from growing up always feeling like you're judged. Um, and they know how to behave in a way that doesn't, doesn't, you know, give people a bad impression. I mean, especially when you think about where she came from. You know, she came from a poor family, and here she is with, you know, getting a law degree, being a very, very well-known attorney, um, being very, uh, very accomplished. Um, and it must have, I just can't imagine what it was like to come from these roots to accomplish so much and then, then to get into the White House and have people complain about you wearing a sleeveless dress. I mean, something as trivi trivial as that, that, that would just make me explode, but she managed to hold it in. <laughs> now, do you have a title for your next book or are you not allowed to tell us? Um, well, I have a working title. It's called Spyville. Um, I, I, I can't think of a better title because that's exactly what it feels like, a little town with spies. Now, even as we speak, do you have ideas for for future books? I mean, do you already have some ideas, or I, I'm I'm thinking that um, I might be do a sequel for the book for this book um, because I love the small town feel. I love the 
the feeling of, of uh, a group of old retirees working with a young um, policewoman in, in a little town. So um, it might, you know, it might go on to a second book. But right now, I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm when you're in the middle of rewrites, it's like it's hard to stick your head above water and look at what's coming. <laughs> that's right. That's true. But I, I was just curious. I, it made me think about how many ideas writers have. I mean, do they have multiple ideas at the same time, or and you know, some of them work, some of them don't. You think of an idea, and sometimes it doesn't go any further than an idea. Well, yeah, that's that's true, and, and some ideas probably shouldn't be books because there's there's just like nothing beyond that idea. Um, but I think that we have to just be open with our curiosity. We have to be listening to 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 conversations all the time because sometimes that has an idea. And most important, we have to pay attention to our emotions. I mean, when you get into a a real life situation and um, it bothers you in some way, that's that's where ideas come from. We just pay attention to what bothers us, what moves us, what makes us angry, um, and a lot of that comes from real life or real news. Well, what makes you happy? If you had to say two things in your life that really make you happy, what would you say? Uh, a good meal. <laughs> a good meal. <laughs> There's a, a good, good answer. Meal and a garden. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, those are two things. I, unless this is one of the reasons I could never live in a city. I just, I just need to be near a garden um, right. and um, good food. Oh my gosh! If I am in a in a town that sells nothing but hamburgers and pizza, I would just waste away and die. Um, I really need to have a place that has a good grocery store where at least I can I can get the th things I need to to bring home and cook. Right, but I have a feeling you don't you don't cook and write at the same time. Oh, I do. I mean, I, I mean, at the end of the day, if um, if I'm hungry for something um, that only I can cook, I'll cook. I, I think cooking is very relaxing. Do you like to cook for other people? Um, not as much because then you feel like you have to be, you know, then you're under pressure. You have to perform. Um, I'm very happy just to cook for me and my family. I have to say, you're one of the most interesting people I've ever interviewed. I, I never know what you're going to say, and I, I really find that charming and, and incredibly interesting. <laughs> well, the cooking part comes from my background. You know, my dad had, had a restaurant. Oh, I didn't know that. He had a restaurant in San Diego. It was a Chinese and seafood restaurant, so he was a great cook. And his mother was a great cook. So I grew up, you know, really appreciating every single meal, and I remember my dad saying... There's only so many meals you can eat in a lifetime, so you better you better make everyone count. That kind of a thing. Oh, that's wonderful. But yeah, and we're all working so hard. We all come home really tired, and who feels like cooking a big meal after that? You know, a lot of times. <laughs> what do you do then? You know. Well, you know, it just depends on what you have. Yeah, and the other thing a good cook learns is look in the refrigerator. What do you have? What can you do with what you have? And that's that's always a fun challenge is you have different puzzle pieces every time you open your refrigerator. So how do you put it together into a nice little puzzle? That's right. And it works the same with a book, too, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yes. It's the same kind of mixture. You know, you're, just, you're mixing things up to make, make it a, an interesting story and, and an interesting character. Yep. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's in a way, it's like cooking on the page. <laughs> I'm reading. I'm reading Faye Kellerman's new book, which is coming out soon, called The Hunt. I'm gonna. You're gonna hear an interview with her soon on my show, and she's got a character named Chris in her new book, and he's he's nothing. He just loves nothing but sex. And, oh. I mean, basically, he's just a sexual. 
he wants it all the time. And it, it, he's such an interesting character, though, e even though that he, he likes that sex part, he's fascinating. Because you never know what he's going to say next. <laughs> and I think to myself, that's really key when you're reading a book, to have these characters that stay in your mind. Like, I have to know more about this character. I have to know what... And he's such an evil character in some ways that you have to know how he's going to end up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's all about... It's, um, it, it almost doesn't matter what the plot is. It doesn't matter who gets killed or how the, how the mystery gets solved. It's really about whether these people stay with you. And in this book, it says, is Jane's mother going to survive? Is she going to be alive at the end of the book? You know? <laughs> and truly, you think that. I mean, you think, well, she's a major character, and she wouldn't dare kill her off. But you never know nowadays. That's true, and she she isn't actually a major character. She could be killed off. I could easily dispense with her, and it would still be Rizzoli and Isles. But you know what? I love Angela, and... Um, I just, she was so much fun to write, and it was so much fun just hearing the things that come out of her mouth that I wasn't expecting. Right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I, I have to let you get back to work, I'm sure. And the book, again, is called Listen to Me. It's out from Valentine Books and all your bookstores now. And you have a lot of people on the back. Linwood Barkley, like the Lisa Scottolini, and Karen Sly. You have a lot of good friends. I do, and they're generous friends. And you know what? I try to be generous as well. You know, if I can just get to, to down to my to be red pile, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm always happy to to. Uh, you know, the, the problem with reading a great book is all you want to do is read great books. So you want one after the other. And that's very difficult to find. Yeah, it is. But um, aren't we lucky that we have so much to choose from? Right. As long as you pick the right ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pick one that's boring. <laughs> but anyway, this has been this has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, it's been nice talking to you again after all these years. Yeah. So thank you for reaching out and reconnecting. Um, and um, yeah, we'll we'll talk again. Yeah. And this has been David's book talk, and we'll talk again to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's book talk. Brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, Dave Baldacci.